Take your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Revelation if you're not already there. Let's continue to make some room up here. Let's read this brief letter and then we'll talk about it. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. (coughs) Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we we look at these letters over the next uh, seven weeks, six weeks with today, what we're going to see is is a a repeating structure that, that varies just a little bit, but for the most part stays pretty firm. Uh, Each letter has a description of Christ. Most of the letters have a commendation to the church. Sardis and Laodicea have no commendation. Only two of the churches receive any comfort or encouragement. That's Smyrna and Philadelphia. And you'll notice that the churches that receive comfort and encouragement have no rebukes. The rebuke is there for what needs to be corrected. The prescription is how they are to correct it. And the warning is what will happen if they don't correct it. And then finally, there are promises made. Let me ease up a little bit here. Does that make it easier to see? And then finally, there, there are, are promises that are made to each one of these churches. That promise is really important, by the way. Uh, no matter how bad any of these churches are, the promise tells us that the letter doesn't end with the rebuke and the warning. The promise says there is a way out. It's not over for, for any of these, including the worst of the worst. So this morning we're going to talk about Ephesus. There's a description of Christ. There's uh, two commendations, actually, for the church of Ephesus. No comfort and encouragement because of the rebuke. Now, if you just take a second and think about this, the fact that, that Smyrna and Philadelphia receive comfort and encouragement and that the others receive a rebuke, prescription, and warning. Um, In general terms, this is just really brief. We'll cover it in more detail. Why wouldn't the other five receive some form of comfort, some form of encouragement? And it's because of the holiness of God. God deals with black and white. He, He deals with what's holy and what's unholy. It's good or bad. It's wicked or it's righteous. There's there's no blending. He judges us by his own standard. He doesn't have a lower standard and say, you know something, if you can just do 70%, we're good. Anything short of 100% is sin. Now, the good news is Jesus died for sin. He died for sin. That doesn't disqualify us. 
In, in fact, let me say this. There's only one thing that qualified you for salvation, and that's your sin. Nothing else qualifies anyone for salvation except the need for salvation in Jesus Christ. So as, as we talk about Ephesus then, let me move down. We're, we're going to talk about the description of Christ briefly there in, in verse 1. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As we saw last week, if you weren't here, you can get the message online. Uh, as we saw last week, these are, these are statements that are identified in the first chapter and explained. The seven stars in Jesus' hand are the, the pastors and, and elders of these churches. The golden lampstands are the churches themselves. Um, a lampstand holds more than one lamp, if that makes sense. A lampstand holds more than one lamp. You'll notice that these are not letters to lamps. These are letters to lampstands. These are letters to congregations. What Jesus is saying here at the very beginning of these letters, by the way, in verse 7, he says, he who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. So each one of these churches was to pay attention to what the Lord said to the others. Um, the, uh, what, what we see in the very beginning letter, the first letter to Ephesus, is Jesus' absolute sovereignty and authority over the churches in every way and over me as a pastor and teacher of the Word and over the elders of the church. In every way. His authority is absolute. I answer to him for, for what I say this morning. There, there is not a, a special rug up here that says blessing that I get to stand on because I'm a pastor and teacher. There's a rug up here that says judgment that I stand on because I'm a pastor and teacher. And we as a congregation in this letter face his, his judgment. We face not the loss of salvation, we'll talk about that, but we face his judgment as his church. He has expectations for us. That's why it's so important that we understand what he expects of us and follow through with that. There are two commendations in in Ephesians in uh, verses 2 and 3 and then in verse 6. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, he says, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also have. What these commendations tell us is that what we do matters. What we do matters to the Lord. Now think about what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your endurance. This is a hard-working church. This is a hard-working church. The word that we translate works here is kind of the finished product. I know the project. I know what you've achieved. I know what you're doing. The toil is the energy that goes into that project, into that product, into creating that thing, into that activity. And the endurance is their, their willingness to continue with the toil until it's done. This is a hard-working church. They have a clear understanding of what they are to achieve. They devote themselves energetically to, to achieving it, and they don't quit. They, they, keep, they keep moving forward until they've accomplished what the goal is. It's also a wise and knowledgeable and courageous church. They're, 
They're very, very savvy. He says you cannot bear with those who are evil. He doesn't say you don't bear with those who are evil. He says you cannot. You can't put up with them. They nauseate you. They make you sick. They haven't fallen for this, this modern idea we have in 2016 that you ought to keep your ideas to yourself and your opinions to yourself and everybody's ideas are equally valid. They say, hey, when evil comes in, it makes us nauseous. We, we refuse it. We can't take it. He says in verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. Now, we, we know two things about the Nicolaitans. We know that they're mentioned in the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we know that they're mentioned in the letter to the church at Smyrna. That's all we know about the Nicolaitans. In the church in Smyrna, they're connected to um, sexual immorality and food offered to idols. And he compares the Nicolaitans in the first century to Balak and Balaam back in in the Old Testament, back in uh, 1 Kings or uh, Samuel, one of those. Old Old Testament. They're all dead. They're all dead. Don't worry about it. That's all we know about the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitan uh, might be a title. I think most of your Bibles probably have it capitalized like it's a title, like, like Americans or Husker fans or something like that. It's capitalized. Nothing against Husker fans. Just an example. Keep your seats. It might not be a title, though. It might be descriptive. Uh, anybody have Nike shoes? Got Nikes on? That's that's from the Greek. That's from the Greek word conqueror or victory, which is the word Nike. Yeah, yeah. Nike is the goddess of victory. So Nico, victory, Leo, Laodin or Leos, people. These are people who conquer the people, who overwhelm the people, who dominate the people. We see that in Smyrna. They're coming in and and they're enticing the church, to be involved in sexual immorality. Because after all, you're saved by grace, who cares? Or the body doesn't matter, it's only physical, it's only the spirit that matters, that's Gnostic thinking. We don't know why. Or eat food offered to idols. But not just food offered to idols. First Corinthians, Paul says, there's no such thing as an idol. If somebody gives you meat offered to an idol, eat it. It doesn't matter. If your conscience bothers you, don't eat it, obviously. But there's not a sin in doing it. What's the problem in, in the Nicolaitans in Revelation? It's that they're not just eating meat that had been offered to idols, they're being encouraged to offer the meat themselves. Everybody else is doing it. You go do it too. So the Nicolaitans are, are a profoundly disturbed group of false teachers. And Jesus says to, to the, the Ephesians, you're knowledgeable of the truth and you're wise and you're courageous enough to boot those people out. You've got nothing to do with them. If they're false teachers, you've got these people who are claiming to be apostles. They're not. you got the right answer. You put them to the test. Even the word testing here means a careful and extensive, thorough test. doesn't mean that they asked them one or two questions and then gave them the right hand of fellowship. They, they went through details and realized that they were false. It's a mature church. They have endurance. They don't just endure. He says that too. You endure, but he also says you have endurance. It's part of your makeup. It's part of your characteristic. It's part of who you are. Um, we're, you know, it's only, Sarah and Elliot have only been married six years, a little bit more. 
We don't know Elliot as well as we want to know him. We're getting to know him all the time better and better. But what we know about Elliot, what we know about Randy, is that they endure. They have endurance. It's just part of who they are. They don't stop. They don't quit. Never seen them quit. It's a faithful church. They bear up under Jesus' name, or in Jesus' name. Bearing up means that as you're standing outside and the wind is blowing and the rain is blowing, you stand your ground. Bearing up means you stand against all the pressure. Bearing up means that you stand against the pressure of the world and of, and of false believers and of immature believers who are trying to pull you away from the faith. And they do this in Jesus' name. They do this for Jesus' sake. They do this because He's Lord. They do this because He's God. They're absolutely determined to be faithful. It's a steady church. They've not grown weary. The Word makes it clear that they're not going to grow weary. It could, I don't think it's actually a word, but we could, we could say they're an unweariable church. You, you just can't wear them out. So they're hardworking, holy, wise, knowledgeable, courageous, mature, faithful, and steady. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for any of this stuff. He doesn't say, you put these guys to the test. Boy, you're really narrow-minded. Stop doing that. He says, you're hardworking, but you're not saved by works. He commends them for these things. He commends them for these things. But why are they rebuked? Well, verse 4. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. They've abandoned their the love that they had at first. Your translation may say first love. That, that first love is really descriptive and definitive. It's, it's not love that they're lacking. It's the first love. It's not love that they're lacking. It's first love that they're lacking. Well, what does first love indicate? Well, as we, we work through the Scriptures, and there's not time to give references, but as we work through the Scriptures, we see that this first love is passionate, we see that it's zealous. We see that it's focused. We see that it moves believers to be active witnesses of Jesus Christ and His glory. We see that it's comparable to the love and devotion and passion of newlyweds. We see that it's a personal devotion to Jesus Himself. We see that it takes precedence over all other loves. We see that it's consistent. It's daily. It produces spiritual strength and richness of soul. That's what... That's what first love does. What does it mean then to lose your first love? Well, we reverse those things. It means that your attitude toward the Lord becomes cool or casual. It means that Jesus is no longer the focus of your life. It means that silence is the, the, the way that you function. Not in sharing your faith, but in keeping it to yourself. It means that you find other things more satisfying to the Lord and you grow numb to what He has and numb to what He has to offer. It means that worship is a duty, not a delight. And so you give the minimum. You don't engage in it with a whole heart. It means that Jesus is way down the list of your loves and your affections, which frankly means you're engaging in idolatry. If Jesus is not in the top position, you're an idolater. The Old Testament Israel Worshipped God. They went to the temple. They prayed. They did all of that stuff. The Lord says in Isaiah, I am sick of your offerings. Why? Because it's not the only offerings they're giving. That's why in the Old Testament, God compares Israel to an adulterous wife. This lack of first love means irregular, sparse, 
inconsistent time with the Lord. It means that you're living in a state of spiritual weakness and you're lacking any kind of contentment in your soul. The sad thing is there are so many people in the church, there are so many believers who live this way all the time that they don't realize that they're just barely alive. They don't realize that a relationship with Christ is, is not about a little bump once in a while to try and keep you going, but rather something that is devoted and passionate and energetic. Well, Jesus gives them a prescription in the first half of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. So as, as we look at this within the text, remembering is, is made up of repenting and doing. How do you remember You don't just think about what it was that happened. You actually go back. You actually recall it not just to your mind and to your heart, but to your hands and to your feet. How do you remember? You repent of of where you've gotten and do the works that you did at first. What I want you to notice here especially is that while the rebuke is to the church as a whole, the prescription is personal. It's not a corporate prescription. We can't take this prescription as a church. We can only take it as individuals within our relationship with Christ. And to to whatever extent we as a church do that, or any church, that's going to determine where the church is as a whole, where the congregation is. The better off each individual is, the better off we are as a church. If, If you want to think about it this way, it's a little silly. You remember the old joke? What does a man have when he's sitting down but loses when he stands up? Hmm? The lap. Right? Why is that? Why doesn't the lap exist independently? Because it's part of who we are. The church doesn't exist independently of the believers in the church. Take every believer out of the church and the church doesn't exist as an empty shell waiting to be filled. It doesn't exist anymore. What happens when a When a family goes away, there's no family. It's not that there's a blank there. There's simply nothing there. Well, the church is the people of God, and the prescription is individual. And we've got to keep those two things in mind. The first thing Jesus says to do is remember from where you have fallen. Remember. Go back and be aware. Call to mind who you were and how you lived at that time. Um. I'm going to ask a question. Anybody in here remember what you were doing on March 9th, 2007? Anybody? 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 I don't either. I just picked the date out of the air. Do you remember where you were, where you were and what you were doing on September 11th, 2001? If you were more than 10 or 12 years old when that happened? Why? Well, because of this hugely dramatic event. Uh, we had just finished an elder meeting. At Christ is King, I was standing at the counter talking with the guys, and Dave Kasner came in and said a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. We went, no, no. We turned on the radio because there was no TV and there was no streaming video on the Internet at the time, and, and the next plane hit. We, I think we stood there for an hour. We were just paralyzed. You don't forget that. Jesus says, remember, this was a huge event. If you got saved in your, in your teen years or as an adult, if, if you have memory of a life without Christ, that moment should be so memorable for you that you can't forget it. Remember that. Now, what happens if you were 
like our kids, raised, raised in, a, in a Christian home, raised in a believing home, put your faith in, in the, the Lord as a child and not as an adult. Well, we've got to remember that childhood emotions have to grow up. Infants don't love. Right, moms? Infants don't love. They don't love. They only need and take. And, and frankly, they don't care hugely who they need and take from. They get used to mom and dad, but they're not particularly, at, at a week old, they really don't care. What do we expect? We expect that as children grow up, their, their love actually becomes mature love, which means they give as well as take, and their life is not defined by their needs, but by those they love. So if you're raised in the church, if you're raised believing, if you can't remember that moment, where did I put my faith in Christ, can you remember a time when Jesus became the core and the, and the focus of your life? That's what you're called to remember now. And if you can remember that and you realize that you've fallen from that, then the prescription remains the same. Remember, repent, do the things you did at first. If you're raised in a Christian home and you can't remember a time when Jesus really became everything, then you repent of that. You ask the Lord to give you that first love for the first time. We've got a prescription. The prescription begins with remembering, going back to that. The next step is repenting. Why would we repent? Because spiritual apathy and coldness is sin. We don't repent of mistakes. We, we don't repent of of our own weaknesses. I have to wear glasses. There's nothing to repent there. I just have to wear glasses. We only repent of sin. Well, if we repent of the sin of growing cool toward the Lord, then we have to say growing cool toward the Lord is not His purpose. It's not His plan. We have to say that growing cool toward the Lord is not inevitable. It's not part of His design. We let it happen. Some of us weren't taught any better. Frankly, some of us weren't taught any better. I, I've known people, in fact, who, who have been taught exactly the opposite. You need to get over the fascination, get over this constant thing, and just be steady. It's a terrible thing to say to a young believer, but it's said at times. And we're responsible, too, because sometimes we were taught. Sometimes we were taught to be in the Word, to be in the prayer, to be in prayer, to be in fellowship, to be around others, to serve others, and we just didn't do it. We just didn't do it. I've talked to a lot of believers who said, my life with the Lord is just stagnated. It's just cool. It's not dead. I, I trust Him. I love Him. But it's just really kind of dispassionate. I've never had one of those people say, I'm in the Word every day extensively. I'm in fellowship every week. I'm in prayer every day. And my heart is cold toward the Lord. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. We get used to the Lord in the same way that we get used to our spouses. And we start taking, it for, taking Him for granted, just like we take our spouses for granted. And frankly, the, the cure is the same thing. That's not good. I shouldn't be taking Linda for granted. I need to pay more attention to her. I need to aim at serving her. And as I aim at serving her, my heart begins to beat faster for her. The same thing with the Lord. We need to remember, we need to repent, and then we need to do the things that we did at first. Now, I don't know what you did at first, but I can tell you what the early church did at first. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's the gathering of believers together. 
Now, the gathering of the believers together doesn't mean a, a publicized, formal time on Sunday morning. But there are people who live completely isolated from the church in any sense. We need to commit ourselves to the gathering of the fellowship. We need to commit ourselves to the breaking of, of bread. That's not just having a meal together while we watch a game. The breaking of bread here is, is, is probably leaning a little bit more towards remembering that Jesus gave his body for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 that when we take the bread and the cup of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to be reminded all the time, I needed a Savior. I need a Savior today. And devote, they devoted themselves to praying. They devoted themselves to praying. They devoted themselves to praying privately. They devoted themselves to praying with others. Prayers is plural. It's, it's not hard. It's not hard. They opened the word. They shared life with others. They proclaimed Jesus' death and resurrection, and they prayed. That's what they did at first. They did those things. What's the warning? Second half of verse 5, Jesus says, If you don't do this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the, the price to pay, the warning, is not a loss of salvation. If you've been born again, the power of God to keep you and to preserve you is perfect. There's no spiritual abortions. He doesn't say, I'm going to snuff out the lamps. He says, I'm going to remove the lampstand. The lampstand is where everybody gathers. The lampstand is, is the congregation. This local congregation, it's this, this place where we gather. If our hearts grow cold, if we, if we approach the Lord on a professional basis, Mom and I were talking coming down from Creighton, and I realized the word amateur refers to people who do what they do for love. Professionals do it for money or for fame or whatever, but amateurs do it for love. If we become professional Christians and we study the Bible because we're supposed to, we pray because we're supposed to, but we're not amateurs, we're not doing it for the sake of love, and the Lord removes our lampstand, what happens is we lose the spiritual connection we have with one another. Ephesians 4 talks about the bond of the Spirit, that we're supposed to preserve the bond of Spirit in the attitude of peace. The bond that the Holy Spirit gives us as believers together, as a congregation together. If our, if our hearts are cold toward the Lord, he'll just, he'll just let that bond dissolve. He won't take your salvation from you, but you'll find yourself as a lonely lamp. The lampstand in the tabernacle had, had seven lights on it. Sometimes lampstands had multiple, multiple lamps on it. They were all together. Together they, they, they cast off a huge light. Together they, they created warmth. They created a whole atmosphere. There are people living as isolated believers who are like a candle out there on Queen City Boulevard. All alone, all by themselves. And they wonder why it's so hard when it rains, and they wonder why it's so hard when the wind blows. They're not connected. They're not connected. Well, it's possible as a, as a church to grow so professional, to grow so dispassionate in what we do, to lose that first love that the Lord, after numerous warnings, finally just removes that blessing of unity. It doesn't mean we shut the doors. It doesn't mean the corporation goes away. But it, it means it's a mausoleum. No, no, no. Let me rephrase that. It means it's a wax museum. You ask Sarah after church what she thinks of wax museums. It means it's a wax museum. It's full of things that look like they should be alive, but aren't. 
We don't want to be a wax museum. Jesus makes a promise. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, that phrase, exactly as it is here, is in each one of these seven letters. No matter, no matter how bad those churches are, and the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea are in bad shape. Bad shape. There's still the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as I said before, the good news is that the warning is not the end of the letter. The good news is that the letter closes with a promise. And it's a pretty awesome promise. The promise of, of eternal life in the paradise of God, this constant flowing relationship with him. Eternal life is, is not what God gives us at the beginning of eternity, and it lasts throughout eternity. Eternal life is what he eternally gives us. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of God, is in the word of God. And he is like a tree planted next to a river of living water that is constantly receiving life. Jesus says, I'll give you the the right, I'll grant you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Uh, Paradise of God is heaven, it's where God is. Why does God need a tree of life? God doesn't need a tree of life. We need a tree of life. It's, it's there to say whether or not there's literally a tree, he is constantly the source of life that comes to us and will be for all eternity. He sustains us through all eternity. I don't know if that's every moment, if it's every week, if it's every hour, if it's every day. I, I don't know. But there's constantly life flowing within us because of this relationship with him. Now he says to the one who conquers, what does it mean to conquer? You don't need to go get crazy inventive and make up all kinds of ideas about conquering. It's in the context of the letter. Conquering is remembering and repenting and doing the things you did at first. Conquering simply means following his instruction. That's what conquering means. So we don't fight battles. That's not conquering. We don't swim oceans. That's not conquering. We don't climb the, uh, the, the tallest eight peaks on the seven continents, finishing up with Everest, without oxygen. We, we don't have to do that. What he says is, go find your first love again. Listen, that's the most natural thing for a Christian. The most natural thing for a Christian to do is to love the Lord Jesus. It's natural. It's natural. Don't try and drum up love and then go to his word and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Do what he says to do. Go to his word. Get into fellowship with others. Talk about him. Declare his death and resurrection. Be in prayer. And he'll build that first love. He'll build that first love. And it's really that newlywed love that delights in in him, that longs to be with him, that misses him when you're not there, that's sensitive to to that sense that there's a, a separation. Now, how do we love him? How do we love him? Jesus tells us. We don't have to figure this out either. 
Whoever has my commandments, this is the Lord in John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us (coughs) and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Loving Jesus means keeping his word. Loving loving Jesus means obeying him. He says in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We obey him. We obey him. Now, somebody might say, but we're saved by grace, not by works. That's absolutely true. And it's a good thing we're not talking about salvation because we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our love for him. We're not saved by these things. But that is how we relate to him within this relationship that we have, is on the basis of obedience to his word and loving him. And somebody else might say, but then... What's the difference between genuine love and cold mechanical duty? What's the difference between reading the Bible out of passion for the Lord and just reading the Bible because it's a duty, or praying out of passion for the Lord, or praying out of duty? What's the difference between those two? And it's how we do those things. Jesus says to his disciples and says to us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's interesting. If you look at the Greek words behind heart, soul, and mind, there's a huge amount of overlap. Huge amount of overlap. It's emotions and thoughts, it's desires and passion, it's the will, it's the inner person, it's what motivates you, it's what you hunger for, it's how you make decisions, it's, it's what you approve and what you disapprove, it's, it's your knowledge of him, it's your awareness of him, it's your wisdom that comes from him. All of those things are kind of wrapped up in those, in those words. And he's really saying, your whole person, your whole person is given to loving him. So you go to the word, you go to prayer, you go to fellowship, you, you go to the, the, the remembrance, whether it's communion or witnessing, you go to the remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection, and you do it with the whole being. You do it with all of your heart. You do it with all of your soul. You do it with all of your mind. And you do it with all of your strength. That's the difference between some cold mechanical thing and warm, passionate devotion. We love Jesus by keeping His commandments and remaining faithful to Him and devoted to Him and pure in Him and maintaining the, in, the intensity of love for Him. It's, it's very much... I, th- I, think it's fair to say, I think it's fair to say that Jesus says, I want you to be newlyweds again. I want you to be newlyweds with me again. Those of you who have been in me for a long time, he says, who've gotten used to the idea and you know how it works, 
I want you to rediscover what it means to be a newlywed again with me. And go back to that excitement. That's first love. Father, you're the only one who knows the the state of my heart as it really is. Even I don't know my heart. None of us know our own hearts to that kind of degree, to that level of degree. And so we need your help to understand if we've drifted from our first love and how far we've drifted. Although maybe how far we've drifted really doesn't matter. If we know that we've drifted and we remember and we long for that excitement that we had and for the exhilaration that we had. We long for that sense of waking up in the morning and knowing that we had a purpose. We long, Lord, for that. And so we repent. As you grant us repentance, as you break us free from the power of our sin and the power of our own apathy, and grant us repentance, Lord, then enable us to do the things that we did at first. As we come to your word, make it rich, make it leap off the page into our eyes and our minds and our hearts. As we're with other believers and we're, we're talking about you, you're the focus and, and you're the, 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 the object that matters for us. Let that fill us and be delightful. Let it be a little empty when we leave because it's so rich being with other believers. As we contemplate your death and your resurrection in communion as it applies to us in evangelism and witnessing as it applies to other people, let us be filled with wonder that you would save us, that you would save me. And Lord, in our prayer, help us to get our eyes off of shopping list prayers, off of grocery list prayers. And understand that you are the God who hears. You are the God who acts. You are the sovereign Lord achieving your purpose. Lord, in this week and the weeks to come, help us all move back closer to that first love that we had for you. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who realizes that they've never had a first love, they don't really care about having a first love. Other things have taken precedence in their lives and have always had precedence in their lives. And Father, we ask that you would give them faith and give them life. Convict them of their sin. And show them the light and the freedom and the glory in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessing of being with each other. And for the unity that you give us. In the spirit of God. and the bond of peace. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.